Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Believe, was staged as a benefit for the Traverse Bay Children's Advocacy Center, an organization that brings help, hope, and healing to children and families in the aftermath of an allegation of sexual abuse, physical abuse, or witness to a violent crime. Believe was recorded live at the City Opera House in Traverse City, Michigan in April 2019. Hearsay performers from the Northern Michigan community took the stage to tell true stories of their own experiences of believing, not believing, being believed, or not being believed. After the stories, stick around to listen to our special guests, Dr. Amelia Siders and Crystal Frost. Dr. Siders is CAC's clinical director, and Crystal is a local media personality and abuse prevention advocate. They are here in studio to speak with me about what it takes to believe. In our first story, Matt Soderquist is not dissuaded from dating a woman with a dire diagnosis, but then he receives some surprising news about her health. So I met Patty through a coworker. I was rusty at the dating game, only a year past a divorce from a seven-year marriage. She was in graduate school, worked in the same field as I did, and drove a brand new car. Now, I was satisfied with my work and spending time with my kids, but they had started to worry about me when they were with their mom. She had already remarried, but I assured them that my time alone was filled with books and running. But the reality is, I was pretty lonely, which made the prospect of a new relationship all the more exciting. The day before our first date, my coworker begrudgingly asked me to come down to her office and said that she had something to tell me about Patty. I felt like I was back in sixth grade, you know, with sweaty palms, waiting for the cute girl to return the note, asking if they'd go out with you, hoping that she'd check the box yes. I braced myself, figuring she was going to tell me that Patty had checked no. I assumed she wouldn't be interested in a divorcee with three children, child support payments, and an old soft-top Jeep Wrangler with a broken radio, cracked windshield, and a missing rear window that allowed snowdrifts to accumulate in the back seat during the winter. (laughs) She said she she wanted to let me know, before things got too serious, that Patty was sick and that she had cancer, a brain tumor. And not many people knew and that Patty didn't know that she was telling me. So I thought, wow, okay, uh, is that something I want to walk into? I mean, it's just a date, right? And what kind of person would, wouldn't go out on a date just because somebody was sick? But our date went great. We had dinner and drinks. We joked and laughed. She was funny and smart and cute. She didn't tell me about her brain tumor. But I talked about my dad surviving cancer and how he ran charity 5Ks wearing his bright yellow Live Strong t-shirt. It only been two weeks, but I'd fallen hard for that new relationship. When we weren't together, We were texting each other first thing in the morning, all throughout the day and long into the night. She didn't reveal her cancer diagnosis until our third date. We had gone out to her brewery, and on the way home, she started shivering. 
And then the shivering turned into shaking. And I asked her if we needed to go to the hospital, and she said no, that it was normal. And then the shaking became so violent that she passed out. And I couldn't wake her up. A few minutes later, she came to, and I told her we needed to talk. She explained her cancer diagnosis, and she said it started with headaches and light seizures. Her cancer was especially aggressive, and she'd been referred to Grand Rapids, but didn't like the way that they were doing her treatments, so she wanted to seek different options. Now, as a social worker, I tend to be solution-focused. So once she revealed her diagnosis, I went into full-on problem-solving mode. In the name of love, she became my social work victim. I researched several treatment options around the country that accepted her health insurance. I laid out all her options for her. I ordered a Livestrong cancer treatment guidebook, a bright yellow running shirt, and 100 wristbands. <laughs> but the seizures became more frequent. They were more violent. And I could tell when they were coming on. She would start shivering like she was cold, and then she would shake and shake, and I would hold her in my arms, and she would pass out, and her entire body would go limp like somebody had unplugged the life right out of her. And instead of one time a night, it became four or five times a night. I was really nervous because she was still driving. On a Wednesday morning, her close friend and coworker stopped into our office crying. She said she couldn't stand by and watch Patty refuse treatment and get worse after having just watched her own father die of pancreatic cancer. The thought of losing another person close to her was just unbearable. So we concocted a plan and staged an intervention. Basically, we confronted Patty and gave her an ultimatum. If she didn't agree to go to treatment, we were going to duct tape her hands and her feet, throw her in the trunk, and take her to the hospital ourselves. Thankfully, Patty agreed. I took the rest of the week off work, and we headed to Grand Rapids in her car. On our way out of town, we stopped at the bank to get some cash. And I asked her to call the doctor and let them know, give them a heads up that we were on our way, and to tell them that her symptoms had increased and worsened. And when I came back out from the bank, she was just finishing up the conversation, and she said that they told her just to go to the nearest emergency room. And when we arrived at the emergency room, we were seen quickly. Patty explained her diagnosis and her treatment up to that point. I expressed concern about the increasing frequency of the seizures. They admitted us into one of the ER rooms and they put the padding up around the hospital bed in case she had a seizure and they tried to coordinate care with the previous physician. When the doctor came back, he said he was having trouble getting in contact with the previous physician. And Patty said she wasn't surprised because they were so unprofessional and disorganized, which was part of the reason why she didn't want to go there anymore. A little while later, a nurse came and asked for any direct contact information that we may have. And I remember that Patty had called them on our way to the hospital, and I asked to see her phone, but the recent call history was empty. The nurse and I looked at each other, and she said she'd give us a few minutes. I told Patty things just weren't adding up. She handed me her keys, and she said, I'll understand if you never talk to me again. She said a couple months ago she had become so overwhelmed at work that she thought if she told her employer that she had cancer that they would reduce her workload. She'd made it all up. 
she said that no one was supposed to find out, but somebody at work told somebody else, and, and then everyone started believing that she had brain cancer, and it all had snowballed out of control, and her seizures were actually just really bad panic attacks from lying about the entire thing. And I was so confused and angry and sap- sad and happy that she wasn't going to die, but so betrayed that she had lied. The doctor asked to speak to her privately, and I met with the nurse in the hall. I told the nurse I didn't understand how she could be lying, that the seizures seemed so real. When I came back into the room, I'd already made my choice. I told Patty I wasn't leaving. I had the next two days off work, and it was only 1 o'clock on a Wednesday, which meant I had a solid two and a half days to, at worst, drink heavily while we sorted this out. (laughs) Considering she didn't have a brain tumor, I thought she was more than capable of driving, so we left the ER with a list of local psychiatrists and went to lunch, where over multiple beers, I concocted a plan and our second intervention in which we would get all of our friends together, get them drunk, and then break the news to them. After a while of drinking, we all sat around the dining room table and we explained the visit to the ER and that the cancer diagnosis was wrong. Patty didn't have cancer. And there were tears of joy and hugs and crying. And then she explained that it had all been a lie. And there was anger and yelling and more tears. It was all so emotionally confusing. Plus, we were all drinking heavily, so it was like pouring gasoline on this bonfire of emotions. We were all so happy that she was not dying, but so sad that she had lied, and not only lied, but had taken it so far. We knew that our relationships were going to be different forever. The next morning, I left Patty's, and it went on said that our brief relationship was over. She gave me back the Livestrong shirt I had purchased for her, and I drove home, and I went for a run, and I read a good book. If I'd been in therapy at the time, I think they probably would have told me I was intentionally seeking a relationship with a woman I couldn't possibly succeed with because I really wanted to be alone. I don't know. Maybe. In social work, we have this concept called wounded healers. It's this idea that many of us got into the helping profession because we ourselves have recovered from our own wounds. The former drug addict becomes a substance abuse counselor. The person raised in foster care becomes a foster parent. And wounded healers are powerful because they can relate to someone who is still hurting on a deeper level than someone who's never been there. I still see her around town occasionally. She finished her master's degree and she got a job working for mental health. I imagine she's helped lots of people who at one point have felt completely overwhelmed and hopeless. Thank you. In the next story, no one in Dave Murphy's graduate economics class quite believes what they're seeing each time the professor begins class. 
Thank you. Uh, spring term of my first year in graduate school, and uh, the times were less enlightened than we may have wanted to believe. Case in point, back then when we sneezed, instead of making the elegant move of going into our elbows that we do today, we actually used to take out something called a Kleenex. And you might want to Google it. It's spelled with a K. But we would use that, and then we tuck it back into our pockets. We were barbarians. <laughs> uh, so it's spring term. One of my classes is economics, and we have a professor who's billed as a university legend. He's uh, served abroad. He's written a massive number of papers. He's brought recognition to the university. So we're really supposed to be honored to have this guy as our instructor. He shows up at class. He's a tall guy, gangly, very skinny, and he's older. He's definitely past retirement age, but because he's this uni university legend, he's still hanging in there. And the first thing he does is he starts the school's fight song. And he insists we all stand up to sing it with him, but he's singing a solo because none of us know the words. So he's appalled, but he's prepared. He has copies of the fight song. He distributes them. And he insists that we're going to sing this every day several times until we all have it memorized. We didn't learn a lot about economics that first class. And in fact, we didn't learn much for a while during that course. The alleged legend was teaching on fumes. He liked tangents, he liked sports, and rarely did he get around to the subject of economics. Uh, the, it was spring term, and the campus gradually started to green up, and we had beautiful grounds, sprawling grounds, and uh, wonderful gardens, and the rose gardens were particularly impressive, and they had signs up, very visible signs, saying that stealing them was a prosecutable offense. So the professor shows up with two roses that he boasts he's stolen from the rose garden. And uh, we had tiered seating, so it, there was kind of a platform area where the professor was. And then coming up in a semicircle, there was uh, different arcs of the tiers, probably four or five tiers. And I, I guess uh, 25 to 30 students. So the professor takes one of his roses, and he uh, approaches a female student at a lower level, and he hands her the rose, and she says, thank you. And he said, thanks is nice, but isn't there something more? And she was confused with it, and he, uh, uh, he said, in exchange for flowers from a gentleman, a kiss would be appreciated. And uh, it, it, it baffled all of us how this could be taking place. Uh, a couple guys hooted, idiots, but most of us were embarrassed and couldn't believe this was occurring. Uh, but the professor persisted, the young woman resisted for a while, finally she caved, she gave him a peck on the cheek, and as he turned, she looked back at the rest of us and wiped off her mouth. And we laughed, but the professor missed the insult because he was going to get the other rose. And he repeated the stunt on another female student at the lower level. We were hoping that this was a one-off event, but it wasn't. The next class, he showed up with two more roses and pulled the same ruse on a pair of other female students. It, it was long ago. Uh, Joe Biden's in the news today, but it, it was worse than Joe Biden. This was public humiliation, and yet none of us did anything. 25 to 30 of us, none of us did anything. We weren't sure what to do. If the guy had any excuse, he was kind of affable and grandfatherly. Maybe that's how we could justify letting him off, but it was still wrong and we did nothing. Another class came along, and there was uh, 
a woman who kind of intimidated me. I was 22 and straight out of undergrad studies. This woman was probably 30 to 35, always impeccably dressed. Every answer was absolutely spot on. A very impressive person, probably mid-career, coming back to dust up her resume. And uh, the professor is entering from the lower level. The students always came from upstairs. And she's off to my left, and she raises her hand and says, Professor, I want a rose. And so she strides down confidently. She reaches out. She extracts two roses, both roses, from the professor's hands. She gives them an a lengthy kiss on the lips. She embraces him. She almost killed the guy. He, he's, be, he's bedazzled by what's happening. And he's standing there with a daffy grin on his face as she comes back up. And you can see the other female students, they're seething because she's just raised the bar. And as she's coming back up, there's this guy, and I always associated him with her. They weren't sitting together in class, but you'd frequently see them together. And you could kind of get away with whispering loud because the professor couldn't hear. So as she approached him, he said, you whore. And uh, she, she just bared these unsmiling teeth, and she said, whatever it takes, besides I got it over with. And she wasn't talking just to him. She was talking to all of us. The next class came, and it was actually the most memorable of incidents. The professor enters. He has two more roses, four straight classes he's done this. And he zeroes in on a woman who's a couple tiers up. And we could all see who he was focusing on. And this woman knew too. She was fair complexioned and uh, she started to blush immediately. So the professor had to work his way up with that gangly frame. It was difficult going. And he got in front of this young woman who was clearly more comfortable, uh, uncomfortable than anyone else so far. And he held the rose up and he said, you know the game, a rose for a kiss. And she shook her head no, which was a first. No one had tried to flat out deny the guy before. And that generated a couple oohs from the students, but the professor was unfazed. He persisted, and he said, uh, well, you want the rose, don't you? And she said, I'll take the rose, but not the other part. And uh, to, to be honest, that was the first lesson in economics that we uh, heard in this class, <laughs> that you could actually have an exchange about a transaction. So now the professor was not too happy, and his demeanor changed. He was no longer the affable old grandpa. He was a businessman who'd been denied. So he started to get more aggressive, asking for his kiss. And finally, he stuck the rose in her face about an inch from her nose, where she could do nothing but take it to get it out of her face. And he said, you have the rose, I get my kiss. And she shook her head again. And it was uncomfortable. It was silent. It was standoff silence. And she was not going to give in. And finally, a guy who was somewhere up above me said, just kiss him and get it over with already. But she wouldn't. So the professor glared at her and he said, no kiss, give back the goddamn rose. And she did. She stuck it in his face, about an inch from his nose. He didn't want it. But he grabbed it and he said, this will cost you. And then he walked back to the teaching area. He pitched both roses against the wall. And he stood with his back to us, and, it, and I was thinking, if you have an ounce of dignity in you, you'll go back to the teaching, you'll go back to your office, you'll dismiss class, you'll suffer a couple hours of silent humiliation, and you'll never do this again. But that's not what the guy did. He stood there almost trembling for a bit, and then he turned around and he did the most unexpected thing we could have imagined. He began to teach, and he began to teach seriously. The old duffer actually had something left in the tank besides harassing women. He knew his stuff. 
and we learned something for the first time in the class. When the class ended, and I have to say that was probably the most memorable lesson of my entire time in graduate school, I retreated to the grad library. Uh, many of the students would gather after class. They'd grab a cup of coffee. I never joined in that. I was kind of a loner. And uh, I was really troubled by what had happened because I had been raised by a single mother. My father died when I was very young. Um, my mother was an extremely bright person, but limited education. She worked at a bank. She was secretary to bank president and ba bank vice president. But she made terrible wages. And we lived in a dying factory town. We actually had uh, literally the highest unemployment rate in the nation uh, when I was a kid. My mother went to her employers and said, I can't make it on this income. At that time, my two older brothers were still at home. So a family of four, slave wages, she really couldn't make it. And she was told by her employers, um, you know, Adele, those jobs are for men with families to support. Sorry, we can't help you. And when she would look around for the rare jobs that would open, she was told by prospective employers, Adele, you work for the bank we do business with. I'm sorry, we can't help you. She felt utterly trapped. And for over a decade of my childhood, I watched that. And for the first several years after my father died, she came home from work crying every night. When that's imprinted on you as a child, it sticks. And yet, I had sat in that classroom for four sessions. And after wondering as a kid, why can't my mother break out of this? I sat there and I watched a guy manipulating women, probably not even as badly as my mother had been manipulated. And I did nothing. But this one woman finally stepped up and put a stop to it. And right at the time that I'm thinking of all of this and what I'm even doing there in that program, um, the woman that had defied the professor came walking by. She was by herself, and if anyone deserved to have a crowd of other students around, it was her. And so it, it bothered me that she was by herself, and I decided I have to say something. So I walked over to her, and I said, you know, that was one of the gutsiest things I've ever seen. And those were the first words I spoke to the woman I'd eventually marry. Um, her name is Sue Peters. Uh, my name is Dave Murphy, and that's because she was gracious enough to let me keep my maiden name. <laughs> and, uh, and the consequences to Sue's action were, actions were several. First, she was Dr. Grade. We compared notes on our test scores. Uh, she was knocked down one grade because of her classroom behavior. Uh, but the professor never again brought roses to class. He stopped harassing women. And I'd like to believe he could extrapolate a little and not face a similar humiliation in another class. And for the guys in the room, we actually got a professor for a change who was teaching us something. Everybody won. And I also often think about the fact that if she had kissed the professor, I never would have gone over to introduce myself. And I'm no prize, but it was the way we met. So the ripple effect of the courage to stand up for what you believe is incredibly profound. I, I, I also think about how I probably really didn't belong in that class. I don't have an ounce of capitalism in my anatomy. But sometimes against all odds, you can be in the wrong place, but at the right time. Thank you. Next, it takes a long search for Amelia Siders to find someone who believes her after she is assaulted as a college freshman.
Is it really an emergency, she asked. My mind immediately went to my definition of emergency, which is being seriously injured and needing to be transported by an ambulance to the hospital. So I answered no. My resident advisor then responded, well, I have some friends here right now, so I'll touch base with you later, thanks. And she closed the door and left me standing in the hallway of the dorm. As I walked back to my room, I decided, I tried to decide what to do next. It was late, and an hour, about an hour before that, I had come back to my dorm room from a party I had gone to with friends. I decided to take a shower and go to bed, and after showering, I got back to my room, and I put my things down and closed the door. Arms reached out to grab me from behind. He then turned me around, pushed me down, and proceeded to sexually assault me. It was a guy who I had met at that party. I had only spoken to him briefly before leaving, and he had waited in my room for me in the dark. The only thing that he said to me was, you left before I could have you come to my room, so I decided to come to yours. When he got off of me, I jumped up and I ran out of the room down to the bathroom. I locked myself in a stall and I sat there, my heart pounding, waiting and hoping he would leave my room while I was in there. And I knew several things. I knew that I did not ask him back to my room that night. I knew that I had said no, and I tried to push him off of me. I knew I was scared, and I knew what he did to me was wrong. So I decided to go ask for help. I decided to go tell someone. As freshmen, we were told to go to our resident advisor when we needed help with something, so that's how I ended up at her door. When she answered the door, I told her that something had happened to me and I needed help. And standing there in the hallway, after she closed the door, questioning what constitutes an emergency, I started to doubt myself. I walked back to my room, which was empty by then. That question started to bother me. It was an emergency, and I needed to tell someone else. So I called the local police, and after I stated I needed to report an assault, I was asked, where are you calling from? When I told the woman I was calling from campus, she told me that it is their policy for campus police to handle those reports first, and would I like that number? I said yes. So I took the number and called the campus police. A man answered, and I told him that I needed to report an assault, and he asked me a question. Have you been drinking? This was the first question that he asked. I told him the truth, that yes, I had had a few drinks that evening. He then told me that all their available officers were out in a call and could not respond at that time. He then said, look, why don't you sleep on it, and if you still feel that way and you need to report it in the morning, call us back. I'm a psychologist. I know about a phenomena called crazy-making, it's when you have an experience that you share with others and their reaction to it and response to your experience challenges your reality of what happened to you. Most of the time, to survive psychologically, you end up altering your interpretation of what happened so it aligns with theirs. That way, you can continue to exist without going crazy. 
Similar to this concept is what the MEND project calls double abuse. That's when persons of authority have no idea how to handle trauma or abuse and focus on what the victim did instead of the offender. So you begin to doubt yourself and you begin to doubt your experience. I was raised in a family where my voice was valued and listened to. But I was now questioning what happened to me. If it was not bad enough for the authorities to be concerned, maybe I was overreacting. Maybe this was something that just happens in college. After my phone calls that evening, I still wanted to try to get help and report what happened. So I made an appointment with my academic advisor, a man who I respected and liked. I sat across from him in his office and I told him what happened. And he asked me two questions. The first, already becoming a popular one, was, were you drinking? And the second was, are you sure you want to go ahead with these serious allegations against this young man? It could ruin his life. So, I was done. I walked out of that office feeling embarrassed and ashamed and questioning my reality. I didn't tell anyone else. I didn't tell my parents or my friends. But I did apply to transfer to the University of Michigan that next fall and was accepted. I would start over in a place that I didn't have to see the person who assaulted me smirk at me as we crossed paths on campus. I registered for classes at U of M and moved into the all-female dorm next to the law school. I tried to convince myself that I was fine. Then I met a boy who I really liked and we started going out. But at the end of our first few dates, I would start to feel sick to my stomach and all I could think about was, what if he tries to kiss me? On our third date, we were sitting in his car outside my dorm, and he finally did lean over to kiss me. I pulled back so quickly that I hit my head hard on the passenger side window. And he pulled back, and he looked at me. And he said, you look terrified. Are you OK? And I fell apart. I began to cry. And when I stopped, he offered a sweatshirt to me to blow my nose on, and he asked me what was wrong, and I told him. When I finished, I braced myself for the questions, but he just looked at me and said, that was horrible, what happened to you. I can't believe how you were treated, and I'm so sorry you had to go through that. There is something transformative about having somebody really hear you and accept what you have to say without question. But even then, as I left to go inside, I half expected to hear the tires, tires squealing as he peeled out of there, because who wanted to date a girl that was that much of a mess? But about an hour later, he called to see how I was doing. And he told me that after he left, he had called his friend, who was one of the facilitators for the Campus Sexual Assault Survivor Support Group. He had called to ask her how to help me, and the memory of him telling me that he wanted to know how to help me, that's the thing that I think can still wreck me when I think about this to this day. For many of us, it can be those simple acts of kindness that can just devastate you with their power. He gave me her number and told me that she was available to talk if I wanted to call her, and I did call her. 
And I started going to the group, and I started to go to counseling, and it started to get better. The ability to connect with others serves the healing process in very essential ways. And sometimes we find our voice again by joining it with other people. And sometimes I would meet that boy F for coffee afterwards, and he went with me to a support rally a few weeks later, and he held my hand the whole night. My story took place in the fall of 1987, over 30 years ago. That's about as close as the math as I can do. Um, and my nieces are amazed, as they say, that I was alive in the 1900s, <laughs> as I like to call it. But I can tell you that over the years, I had heard variations of my story from men and women I've seen for therapy over and over and over again. Not just the assault, but how they were questioned and doubted afterwards. The double abuse. We need to do better. There is a piece of art hanging in my office that I read every day, and it conveys what I felt that night in the car outside my dorm and in the days afterwards, and it's what we strive for our clients to feel as well. Close your eyes and know that on this journey on this world, in this skin, right here, right now, I am here, and you are not alone. Thank you. Next up, after Daniel Stewart responds to Where Are You From? with a fib that backfires, he realizes he's sometimes just not sure how to answer that question. Thanks. So, where are you from, she asks me. And we're at a freshman mixer. We're like three days into this um, college life. And this girl asking me this question is really, is really, like, really beautiful. And I'm thinking, well, this is my new life, and this is getting off to a really promising start. You know, the only problem is with the question is actually the honest answer. Where am I from? I mean, I'm not from, like, a bad place, but I'm from a place that's boring, I think, because I come from this little town that's literally like 25 miles away. It's just this little suburb town outside of Cincinnati. And I mean, it's my hometown. I grew up there. I spent my whole life there. Um, my family had the, we all had our little American dream there. You know, we started out in a two-bedroom apartment and then uh, like a little ranch house. And now we're living in this like two-story house with a spare bedroom. But I don't think pointing out that my family has a spare bedroom where we can also store things is like the super line to use in, in meeting somebody. <laughs> because, I mean, if you think, I mean, we're making, you know, this is the beginning of small talk, you know, where are you from? Because what the underlying question is, is who are you? Well, I don't want to be boring. I want to be interesting. But the thing about my hometown that's sort of unusual is actually my family. It's because my mother is from Korea. She's a Korean immigrant. My town is otherwise pretty much almost entirely white. So my, my older brother and I, we, and, my, and our mother, we really stand out. And from an early age, I think we were aware that we were visible. 
And we responded by becoming exceptionally well-behaved. Like other mothers would stop our mother in the grocery store to ask how she got us to behave so well because we would just stick right, right next to her to the cart. My parents went to parent-teacher conferences with my very stern third grade teacher and she was asking them for advice on how to deal with kids. Well, most, you know, most days we weren't really aware of looking different. You know, we just look the way we look. You look in the mirror, you see yourself. But occasionally we would be reminded, such as when we're filling out any sort of uh, government form because they want to know your race. So they would have all these little check boxes next to various terms. And they would always say, check one. I can't check one. So I always had, the only option I ever had to answer these legal forms truthfully was to check other. So I grew up being other. And aware of it in an odd way. It would sort of crop up at unexpected moments, like when my big brother got his high school nickname. You know, my, my brother was, uh, to me, the sort of epitome of cool. You know, he was good at sports, he was very laid back, and he had this circle of friends who all really liked him, so they honored him by giving him a nickname. It's a big step for, it's a, big step for a young man. And so in, in high school, they began calling him Fu Man. And that was, of course, after Dr. Fu Manchu, who was the Chinese villain in a bunch of these old black and white movies. And, you know, my, mother, my brother being laid back, he embraced being Fu Man. And because, you know, Fu Manchu was technically the evil villain intent upon destroying Western civilization. But he was also a doctor. <laughs> so... Most of the people in town, they sort of knew us. Like, it helped that my mother worked in the food service in the local school district. So, like, everybody we went to school with knew why we looked the way we looked. But other people, when they saw us, I mean, I got used to it, sort of seeing this question crossing their face when they looked at me. And then they would ask me. And they, ne and they never would just have an open-ended, so what's your background? They would always want to guess. And every single time, they would look at me, they would get that look, and they would say, are you Hawaiian? <laughs> because really, the only time they ever saw anybody who looked like my brother or me was either they saw like Don Ho, or they watched the you know, 500 episodes of Hawaii Five-O. <laughs> so Hawaiian, I got that a lot when I was growing up. And I'm talking to this girl at this mixer. And I'm thinking, you know, she's, she's very pretty. She has this red hair, these big blue eyes, and this, like, translucent skin. I mean, she practically glows. <laughs> and I'm really noticing that, as you might say. And so as I'm, as I'm thinking who I, who I want to be, I'm thinking, I begin answering her question. I am, and it just comes out, Hawaiian. And I, know, I, I realize what I've said when I hear it. <laughs> well, disaster, probably, except her blue eyes just widen. And I realize, this is great. And she, and she says, me too. 
And right then, when I had escaped, I pretty much resolved that I would never again lie <laughs> about who I am. And it wasn't until much later that I realized who I am. That question for, for me, for I guess everybody, is a remarkably complicated question. And I stumbled upon that much later. You know, by this time I'm in my 30s, and uh, my wife and I are spending, are spending uh, four months in Pasadena, so in greater LA, doing, you know, working on a project. So during the weekdays, we work on the project, and on the weekends, we just go and become sightseers. You know, we're not doing that ironic sightseeing thing. We just go and we just want to be tourists. You know, we just go wander around. And this Saturday comes around, we're sort of on our list of places to go see. It's Hollywood. And this is like pure tourist Hollywood. You know, we want to go down there. We want to see the Walk of Fame. We want to see Groman's Chinese Theater. We want to see the Scientology recruiters. You know, the real stuff. You know, they're Superman. He works off tips. You know, we really want to see that kind of stuff. So um, we've lived in Philadelphia for more than 10 years, and we, have, we haven't had a car. And we've determined that the way you get around a city is by public transit and by foot, which we still continue to do in L.A. So we take a bus down to, down to Hollywood, and we began just doing all the standard tourist stuff. And I suppose a lot of people, when they go to Hollywood, you know, they want to go and sort of be in you know, association somehow with glamour, you know, with Hollywood movie stars. And we want some of that too, of course. But we also, because we're sort of academics, we also have this idea that, you know, you want to go to Hollywood and you want to, you want to look behind the curtain. You know, you want to see how they make the sausage. Because that's kind of fun too. So we go into these, we find these little museums that are scattered around just off the, the main drags that have, you know, curiosities and things. Like, we go to one place, and they have a whole, a whole exhibit about Foley artists, um, which I, you know, I've seen them on the credits. You, know, you probably have too. Well, Foley artists make the sounds in movies, and it turns out they make pretty much all the sounds in movies except for the actors talking. So when people are walking on, you know, on wood or on concrete, they're making the sound. When somebody's in a restaurant, in the background, you hear all the restaurant stuff and the other conversation. Well, they Foley artists add all that stuff in. So Foley artists you know, are really about that notion of making the fake real. That's what Hollywood really is. That's what you go to explore. Like one of the museums had the set of the USS Enterprise, the bridge, you know, from Star Trek The Next Generation. And I was like, well, that's, this is going to be pretty cool, you know, because I watched that show. And we walk on the bridge, and it is intensely disappointing. You know, I mean, I'm not a kid. I'm not like, oh, I'm going to feel like I'm in a starship, you know, warp factor five. But, you know, when I looked at everything up close, everything looks really bad. I mean, like all the little display panels, and the, they look really bad. They look really cheap. And, you know, they explained to us, well, it's because they shot this on video, which is low resolution. So they're not going to spend money on putting in all those details because it doesn't show up on TV. They say it's good enough to look real on TV. It's a little deflating, I guess, even though that's sort of what we came for. So we spent all day wandering around, getting a little tired. And, but the next thing on my list is sort of a childhood dream I had, which is not too far away, the La Brea Tar Pits. 
You know, like I think every kid goes through this sort of dinosaur phase. And then part of that is like the mammoth phase and the saber-toothed tiger stuff. And when you're reading all those science books when you're a kid, they all talk about the La Brea tar pits. And that's this place in what is now LA, where a literal tar pit surrounding like a watering hole and animals would walk into it and they get stuck and they would die. So you have all these skeletons that are, that are dug up from the La Brea tar pits. Well, I, you know, I really want to go see the skeletons. You know, again, just being a tourist, I take out my guidebook, look at all the little inset maps, it's close by. Well, it turns out that I didn't quite, I'm not actually very good with directions, and, or with noticing when the scale changes on the maps. So by the time, because we're on foot, we walk down there, it's taken us so long that we've arrived at like 4.30 and the museum closes at five. It's not really worth paying admission to go in and pretty much come right back out. So, you know, well, it's time to, it's time to go. Except in the back of my mind, I've had this other thing. It's like, I should go there while we're in LA. And it's actually just a few blocks away from here. It's not in the guidebooks. It's just a place I've heard about. It's Koreatown. And as a matter of fact, you know, it would make total sense now. And I say to my, I say to my, you know, we're pretty close. We should just go to Koreatown. Well, sure. It would make sense because we could go there, get dinner. Our, the bus to take us back to Pasadena actually goes down Wilshire, pretty much right through where we, where we need to go. And as soon as I propose going to Koreatown, I realize I cannot go to Koreatown. Out in front of the La Brea Museum, which is sort of sunken, they have this big concrete area. And I assume that's where school groups congregate because they have some outdoor exhibits which are probably there to distract the kids and give them a little information. And right nearby that I notice, there is this display that has handles sticking out of the top of it. And when I step over, the panel explains that it's there. I could tell actually what it doesn't say, which is to answer the question, like in the back of every school group, there is some obnoxious kid who's, who's gonna say, how come all these dumb animals walked right in with, into a tar pit and died? And this display is to answer that question. Because what it shows is the handles are sticking into these little legs because at the bottom they've poured a bunch of tar from the, from the pit. And the legs reach in at varying depths into the tar because the bottom is sloped. And they just have a few of these pairs so you can feel like what it would be like to walk in the tar. And the ones close to you are in the little bit of tar. It's just sort of sticky but then they get farther away and farther away and deeper in the tar. And by the time that you come to that last row where it's still not very deep, there's nothing you can do to lift those, to lift those little legs out of the tar. It shows how easy, how quickly you go from sticky to stuck. And as I'm realizing that I can't go to Koreatown, which I've just proposed going to. I've always thought that I wanted to go to Koreatown. I go over to this and I just start working the, working the levers, sticking in, the feet in and out of the tar. It actually takes me a long time to figure out what's going on in my head. 
I'm just confused when I'm standing there. But I think, well, what's in Koreatown? I've always had this idea in knowing that it existed. Well, Koreatown is that place full of people who look like me. I've never been around people who look like me. And even better, if I walked into Koreatown, I've always thought, well, they'll look at me and they'll say, oh, I know exactly who you are. They won't, nobody's, nobody in Koreatown is going to look at me and say, are you Hawaiian? <laughs> they'll know. But here I am just a, just a few blocks away from Koreatown. And I'm realizing, if I go into Koreatown, what will I be? I've actually never really been around Koreans. I mean, my family visited Korea when I was 14. We all went over there. You know, I don't know any Korean. My mother, she didn't know any Koreans to speak it to, so we, I couldn't have picked it up that way. And really, she wanted us to learn English. She wanted her sons to be American. She wanted to be more American, but she could never get rid of her accent. But we can be pure Americans. When we visited Korea to meet my mother's family for the first time, it was really nice to meet all of them. It was really lovely. And I couldn't speak a word to any of them. My mother had to translate constantly back and forth. And when we left, I was saying goodbye to some of my cousins whom you know, I just met, basically. And now I was saying goodbye. And one of my cousins came over to me. She was a few years younger than me. And she said something to me. And I turned to my mother to translate. And um, Koreans are more formal in language, even when you're talk talking to your family. Like, you don't often use, for somebody who is older than you, you won't really call them ever by their given name. And first cousins especially, when you talk to each other, apparently you would always refer to each other, you would address each other as brother and sister. Like, if you saw your cousin, you'd say, hello, brother, how are you? And when I turned to my mother, my cousin had said, brother, why don't you speak Korean? When I, I never felt entirely comfortable in my hometown, even though I grew up there, because I always felt I was like half this and half that. And then I go to Korea, and I feel like I'm the opposite, if that makes any sense. I'm now like half that and half this. So as I'm sit standing at this display, pulling on these levers, feeling where sticky goes to stuck, I mean, look, you, by the time you get older, you realize there are many advantages to growing up, not being able to like limit yourself to being in one little checkbox. That's a big thing to be able to get. But there's always a price to pay for that, too. So as I'm standing at that display, pulling on those ones that are stuck, figuring, you know, giving him all my strength. Maybe if I pull hard enough, I'll be able to get them loose. The thoughts running through the back of my head. How dumb do you have to be to walk right in here and get stuck? Thank you. In our last story, now that Heather Hudson's son has become a teenager, she finds herself rethinking how she responded to the endless phone calls about his classroom behaviors. 
The phone calls from the school started immediately. I had just enrolled my almost three-year-old son in Montessori. I worked from home, and although I was able to manage most of his needs, I felt his vocabulary hadn't developed as much as I thought it should. I figured being in an educational setting would be good for him for socialization and improving his speech and his vocabulary. I answered the call from the school, and in her soothing Montessori tone, she said, Hi. We think you should pick him up early. He's getting frustrated, and he's hurting other people's bodies. <laughs> oh dear, I thought. What exactly does that mean? It turns out, when he couldn't communicate what he wanted, he would get frustrated, and they didn't understand him, so he would physically move and push the guides to show them what he wanted. After about four weeks of them trying to figure him out, and me picking him up early every day, they suggested I have him tested to see if he qualified for the early special needs program. We went through the testing with the school district and it was determined that he had the ed educational label uh, of autism spectrum disorder. I was eight months pregnant with our daughter when we got this news. To say I was upset, surprised, and overwhelmed was an understatement. The good news was he did qualify for the special program and he started the getting the support he needed from people trained to handle children with different needs. So the phone calls stopped, for now. He eventually aged out of the program and was moved into a regular Young Fives program the following fall. His speech had improved slightly. One of the ways he found to work on speech was watching videos in 60 second intervals over and over and over again. He would memorize their facial expressions and how they said their words, and he often spoke in movie quotes, which surprisingly often fit the point he was trying to get across. The teachers would say, what movie is he watching these days? Because today we asked him something and he responded, no money, no tickets. <laughs> I was like, oh yes. That is the train station ticket seller refusing Frosty the Snowman and his friends passage on the train. Advanced warning, Wizard of Oz is up next. To this day, he sometimes sounds like a cartoon character when he is talking, only now his voice is much deeper. We eventually had him further evaluated at Beaumont Hospital in Detroit to see if he could get into the three-month applied behavior analysis program there. Our goal was to learn systems of behavior management that I could relay to his teachers so he could have a positive experience with school and also at home. I too was having trouble figuring out how to discipline. One day I spanked him and he looked at me like, why would you hit me? And I thought, well, the heavy handed fear-based discipline that I was used to as a kid wasn't going to work with him. I was going to need to learn a better way. We went in for the testing at Beaumont, and the first th thing they said was, he's a very interesting child. In fact, less than 1% of the children we have tested, tested the way your son has. Awesome, I thought. They said, what we are basically saying is, we've never seen a child like this before. And they ended up diagnosing him with expressive and receptive language disorder, 
with features of autism and ADHD. Great, I thought, he is minoring in all the hard stuff. <laughs> he was accepted into the program, and my, therefore my now almost two-year-old daughter and I moved, and Noah, moved in with my parents. My middle brother, his wife, and two, two young kids had also moved back in, so we had a full house. For three months, my son and I drove two hours round trip four days a week. Although it was very inconvenient to do this every day and then do my job when we got home, it forced me to sit with my son and give him my undivided attention to learn along with him four hours a day how to help manage his behaviors and consequently mine. Overall, it was a good experience, but each system they came up with to help manage his behaviors would only work for about two days. And then he would realize we were manipulating him, and he would find a way around it, and we would have to start all over again. Eventually, what we learned was he was not interested in being managed. When we completed the program, they gave me a big hug, and they said, good luck. When we got home, I did the best I could to share what I'd learned with the teachers. It was going well for the first few months as the aide he was assigned worked really well with him and seemed to have a handle on how to navigate his behaviors before they escalated. Unfortunately, that aide took a position at another school and shortly after his departure, it didn't take long for the phone calls to start again. Some of the calls I received that year were, he leveled the classroom in three minutes. The other students have been removed from the room. He has calmed down and he is sitting in the corner crying. Can you please come get him? He is a flight risk. He is very fast and can get away quickly. We have placed walkie-talkies at all the exits and have asked the staff to intercept him when the call goes out that he has taken off. Do we have your permission to physically grab him to stop him from leaving the building? After giving permission to allow physical restraint, I wondered how they passed this along. Did they have wanted posters printed up and put up in the teacher's lounge? If you see this child heading for the exit, you have permission to tackle him. He is very strong and not concerned about your feelings. Proceed with caution. On yet another day, a call started with, please come quickly. Four of us have him cornered in the stairwell with mats. Okay, I replied, I have given you permission to take his hand and move him through the building. What seems to be the problem? Well, we can't. He was getting hot, you see. So he started taking off his clothes and throwing them at us. He realized this got a reaction, so he is now completely naked. I asked, is the principal there? No. Well, we all know he responds to men. Can you please get the principal involved? I will be there in 10 minutes. When I arrived, he was sitting in a chair, swinging his feet in the office. I asked how, what had transpired in the last 10 minutes, and I was informed that the principal walked in, said, put your clothes on. He said, okay, and then he did so and followed him back to the office. And the most heartbreaking call I ever received was, we think the Adderall you tried today isn't the right dosage. He started hallucinating and screaming. He took off running and got outside and down the street a half a block before we could catch him. That was the first and the last day I medicated him.
We spent the next several years managing his behaviors at school. He had some fantastic people on his team, but just like before, the ones who understood him the best moved on. In third grade, we started back at the Montessori. In many ways, in elementary, he was under a microscope, and his every behavior was logged, analyzed, and interventions created. They often would say, I'm not sure if he's acting like this because he's six years old or whatever age he was, or if be it's because he's on the spectrum. We were very fortunate that he was surrounded by teachers and staff who loved him and worked hard to give him the support he needed to mature and work through his frustrations, which eventually helped him learn how to manage his behaviors in school and at home. But that didn't mean the phone calls stopped completely. Once he got a little older, the calls were less frequent, but still sometimes happened. Like the one I received to let me know he jumped a kid in gym class and went all Ralphie from a Christmas story on a boy who had been bullying him. They said, we should let you know that this boy has been picking on him for two months, and today your son reached his limit and ended it. So although we don't allow this type of behavior, the kid had it coming. Incidentally, the kid never picked on him again, or any other kid for that matter. One day after walking him inside, I got into my car and my cell rang. I hadn't even made it out of the parking lot. Please come back in here, there has been an incident. He tripped a boy half his size, three years younger, who just walked into the school and the witness was the boy's mother, who also happened to be a friend of mine. The boy's father was also a local sheriff. This wasn't good. When I asked what happened, he said, well, he's been calling me names every day for weeks and I asked him to stop and he wouldn't stop. And today, when he walked in, he gave me a face and so I tripped him. After I explained to the boy's mother what happened, her anger got redirected from my son over to her son. When my son apologized to him and also to his mother, she replied, thank you for your apology and I'm sorry that my son was unkind. Her response warmed my heart. She showed so much grace that day by acknowledging that there are two sides to every story, and if we listen, we may find our initial thoughts on something can be changed. I thought after that close call with an angry mom and law enforcement, he would have learned his lesson, but on yet another day, I received a call, and they informed me that he pushed a girl on the playground, and she retaliated by biting him back. Oh no, I thought, which parent do I have to apologize to now? My thoughts were qu quickly interrupted when she said, oh, we didn't have to call another parent because the girl is your daughter. <laughs> so we're just gonna need your signature in two places on the incident report after school. Great, well, at least we're keeping it all in the family now. Eventually in sixth grade, I received a call that started out, everything is fine. We just wanted to make sure that not all phone calls home are negative. He's doing really well. The other kids in his class voted him the best worker because he's the only one who has all his work done and on time. He has been giving other kids advice on how to better manage their behavior. He makes all the teachers and staff laugh with his perspective and humor 
and he has drawn everyone in the class as their own superhero and listed their superpowers and strengths. We've decided to make it into a book for the end of the year's album. As he got older, matured, and learned more words, he got easier to manage and redirect. What we learned was the old style of do what I say without questioning type of discipline was not going to work. He wanted to know why we would ask him to do things or expect him to behave in a certain way. We quickly learned that explaining why and listening to his logic as to why what we why what we didn't what we were asking him to do didn't compute was the quickest way to get the resolution. He has learned more about conflict resolution and self-regulation in his young life than most adults likely ever will. He is now 16. He hasn't had any incident reports in four years. As he has been maturing through puberty, we have had to adjust our communication style, and both of us now do a lot more listening than controlling. I recently received a phone call from his manager at work. He asked if I could help him. A couple weeks back, he discovered that my son was changing his clothes in the break room. He did note that the sign on the outside of the door states locker room, and although it does in fact have lockers, it is actually a break room with big windows that face a hallway that anyone, including customers, can walk by and see in. He asked my son to please go into the bathroom to change his clothes. He said he was just informed that some, someone saw him changing his clothes again, and could I please have a conversation with him? My first thought was, why would you label break room locker room? Help me help you, sir. <laughs> I approached my son about it with somewhat of an exasperated tone, as I couldn't believe it had been asked not, that he was asked not to do something, and then he did it again anyway. I was concerned he might get written up for indecent exposure or something. He responded with just as much exasperated tone and said, I was taking off my button-down shirt. I still had a t-shirt on underneath. I wasn't getting naked. Jeez! <laughs> just another case of him being misunderstood and someone not seeking out his side of the story. In the years spent learning how to communicate with my son, I had to ask myself, do I make him fit into my preconceived expectations of how a child should behave and how discipline happens? Or do I adjust and start listening and adapting to his individual needs, personality, and learning style? Yesterday, I received a text message during school hours, but this time it was from him. Mom, I changed my mind about that school program. My answer is no. My text pleaded, you haven't even toured it yet. Can you visit before you make up your mind? Nope. Why the sudden change? In the four minutes it took him to reply, I thought about how I should handle this. I'm his mom, his advocate, the one who has been guiding his academic career to ensure that not only does he graduate but that he is also set up for college or a great career by giving him the experience and the guidance he needs. This program would have a lot of great practical life experiences and could launch him into a great career. He would be supported by an excellent group of individuals and it would work great, look great on his resume. 
doesn't he understand that I just want to set him up for success? His text comes in. I don't want to miss the excitement at school the next two years. I rock back on my heels and immediately respond, okay. And he immediately replies, thanks. I took a deep breath, slowly shook my head and smiled. I've spent the last 16 years trying to be his voice, to advocate for him, to stand up for him, to help explain his actions, and try to help him fit into this world that wasn't created for a one percenter like him. He was basically telling me, Mom, I fit in. I'm happy. You don't need to change a thing. Oh, my baby boy, my young man of 16, was now advocating for himself. As I reflected on this, I realized, wait a minute. He actually has been advocating for himself his whole life, but before now, his voice had been too small to hear. Thank you. So although the core of the CAC's work is focused on child abuse intervention, we put on a show that did not comprise all stories about abuse. Let's give our listeners some insights as to why we made that very deliberate choice. Well, this is where we talk. Okay. This is where you talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Why we made that. Okay. Um, well, I, I think personally that the reason that we wanted to make it a show that's about believing in general is that not everybody has experienced exactly what um, maybe the clients at the CAC have experienced, but they've all been in a situation where they did believe something um, that turned out not to be true, where they didn't believe something that was true, or th where they were not believed. Um, so I, I personally think that it was important to put everybody on that same sort of page of understanding how Im the importance around belief in general. And I think we also tried to be very thoughtful about anyone with um, the idea that they were going to come and listen to a few hours of stories all about abuse. That could feel extremely overwhelming and stressful for the audience. And so we wanted to have a theme that, that you know, there's pieces of that. And we do have some stories about some abusive things that happen. Um, but we also... Everyone can connect with one of those storytellers in some way around that theme of, of being believed. So I think that that makes more sense when we're trying to think of something where we want to get people to come and listen, but not overwhelm them with something that could be pretty traumatic to listen to for that long. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, each of these stories was about believing in very different ways. Matt's story, for instance, was about being misled by a romantic interest, mm. but handling it so graciously when the truth is ultimately revealed. And I I don't know. I know that I've been lied to by romantic interests and partners. I'm sure that that's kind of a universal <laughs> theme. Um, I don't recall ever being as forgiving as what Matt described. Uh, <laughs> how about you two? <laughs> oh, that's a really tough one. <laughs> Have I ever been as forgiving as Matt forgiving so quickly um no probably not 
but uh, I also think that his nature was really, um, he, it was it was such a good display of of him as a social worker and uh, as what he does in his day to day life. I mean, he helps people find you know solutions to their problems, and that's what he was doing the whole time. So I don't even know that he had a chance to be angry or even to be forgiving. I just think. It was second nature to him. Yeah, he just you know? he just got to work. <laughs> he just got to work. I mean, that's what the whole story to me was like. Wow, you, you're good at your job, bro. You know. <laughs> um, I think you know before I was trained as a psychologist, I probably had less tolerance for things like that. Um, but I think once you're kind of trained to really try to look at other people's perspective all the time and understand their point of view, I probably went the opposite way, which might not have been as good either, <laughs> because then you're always trying to understand and and be able to to have that empathy and, and join somebody in what they're doing. And so you try to excuse away those things and then make it okay that they may not be telling, well, this is because of this and this. And, oh, boy. And mm-hmm. then you get in the other end of than staying in something that might not be too healthy sometimes. So we have to come up with that balance. So I think I've come the other way again, but you, initially I think that training can make you be overly <laughs> supportive and forgiving. You're too forgiving. You're too <laughs> In sensitive. your personal life, at least. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for me, I think it's more of a, oh, I'm mad that you did that, and I'm not still mad, but goodbye. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I've probably been in the boat of you're dead to me. <laughs> you do not exist on this earth. <laughs> I guess I have some work to do. <laughs> so, um, and then in Dave's story, it's interesting to hear his story about this classroom full of graduate students who witness overt sexual harassment and they either don't believe what they're seeing or they don't believe they have the power to stop it. So we're listening to the story in 2019, and it's my understanding that it happened in 1980. So with the Me Too movement, we're all so much more attuned to believing exactly what we're seeing. Do you think there's also been a shift in believing that we have the power to do something about things like this? Well, gosh, I hope so. I mean, that story made me so uncomfortable the entire time. And just this idea of so many bystanders, you know, not saying anything that seemed helpful at the time, but, I mean, obviously they thought that maybe they were being helpful. There was a part in that story that stuck out to me when there was a um, a, a woman who was a professional woman who um, made the decision to uh, get it over with, so to speak, um, and that really sat with me because she thought that she was solving a problem for herself, something she knew she wasn't going to get out of. So she decided to be proactive and quote unquote, solve the problem and still took so much judgment over it. Um, Yeah, that, that was a tough story for me. I really think there's a shift. I mean, I think with, with this young generation now, I think there's, you know, when I talk to young people and I, and I counsel with them, Bad things can happen to them, but I still think this is idea that well, we can say something, we can do something about it. And I think the Me Too movement really did empower a lot of people. In a way, I think it empowered some people from my generation to speak out. I mean, I, I think recently we see the women that spoke out about Joe Biden's just the physical behaviors that made them uncomfortable. I think the Me Too movement and kind of younger people, people of color, people that really were brave to start 
talking about those things helped empower some of us who might have just gone with that, well, it's always been that way. And so I think it's nice to, to see that shift and have a lot of hope for our future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that actually recently came up, um, just this generational issue where I was having a conversation about um, a comment that had been made that made me uncomfortable and someone um, of my parents' generation had said, oh, that's just how it is. Like, why raise a fuss? And I really feel like we're kind of past that point now where why raise a fuss because it made me uncomfortable. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we can't necessarily expect everyone to change, but I think just having the voice really shifts the dynamic. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So in Daniel's story, he told a white lie in the spur of the moment about where he's from, and then it backfired and led him to a greater inner conflict about his identity. And this is actually the only story that was told where the performer was the person who had misled someone. Um, so have either of you ever told a lie, however big or small, about who you are? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I, I spent a great deal, deal of time in my life, um, trying on different personalities and personas and trying to figure out who I was in the process of figuring out who I was, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and I think I became a, 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 a chameleon, um, you know, just trying, if, if, I, if you and I were hanging out together and you loved guacamole, then I would love guacamole and that's all I would talk about when we were together, um, because I think I was incredibly insecure, and as far as, like, I don't think I've ever told a big lie about who I was, <laughs> but uh, those small lies, I completely understood Daniel's story. He didn't want to have to explain, and I think there was also a point in his story where he realized he could reinvent himself, that, you know, his he's not in his small town, that he's not, um, you know, he's not with the same community, that he can be whoever he wants to be at that moment. But the real issue was that he had never come to terms with who he was, um, hence the lie. So I, I think I really relate to that, too. I think, I think we all do that, too. You know, It's not just something you do in your 20s and 30s. <laughs> um, you might do it for the rest of your life. I don't know. What do you think, Amelia? Well, I agree. I think I had that same pattern when I was younger, when you're trying to figure out who you are. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you try, you know, try on different pieces and if you want to fit in. You know, oh, so totally. I completely understand and I could identify with that. I I know for me that the thing I tried so hard to do, and this was a little thing, but um, was my nickname when I was growing up. I hated, I've, I've always wanted to be Amelia, and um, my mother kept rebranding me Amy all the time. And so part of what, you know, I'd always try to do when I would start out in a new classroom, a new school, have you ever, do you have any nicknames? No, no, I do not. <laughs> you know, so I mean, trying to just keep something different than how other people might want to to look at you and and so maybe that's not really a lie because (laughs) but it's more your family sometimes has a way of looking at you and you try to change that perception with your friends and and other people you Mm -hmm. don't want them to see it that way and crystal you've publicly shared your experience as a child sexual abuse survivor and while you were on stage as mc at the show you mentioned that your mom believing you when you first revealed your truth was the most important thing that happened to you in your lifetime. Why do you think it's often so hard for victims to be believed? Well, I, I think it's human nature to n- never want to think that something so awful could happen. Um, I think 
instantly when you see whatever it might be if it's it's so awful you immediately want it to be not true um and and I think with the situation with child sexual abuse um you know you're you're talking about the way that it sort of weaves itself into families so oftentimes as the CAC um, has taught me and has taught so many other people most of the time this is a perpetrator that people know that they respect that they trust that they love so when you're talking about a child and accusations and an adult and accusations and people just don't want to think that their friendship um, their relationship their marriage that this person is capable of that um, and you know, as a as a victim, as a survivor, I I can understand that. You know, I think that I've been in situations where I've said, "No way, that can't can't possibly be true." I mean, whether it's talking about someone that I know in the community that has had allegations of of sexual abuse, and as a survivor myself, I still go, "Oh gosh, I hope that's not true." But I know that if a child is coming forward, it's probably true. Um, and I have to deal with that. You know, I'm the one that has to deal with, well, this relationship now has changed, and this person is a perpetrator. Um, and I think that that even happens in a grand scale. I mean, think about all of the things that we've dealt with, you know, in um, society when it comes to, like, Michael Jackson or Bill Cosby or these figureheads that people, you find out truths about them, and you don't want to believe it. I mean... If you took that into a familial scale where it's your family members, it's very difficult, I think, for people. Um, but ultimately, the work that the CAC does is to say, you need to tell a child that you believe them. That's the number one most important thing is that you say, I believe you, and I'm here to help you. And that's what happened with me. And it really did change. It really, I think it changed my entire life. Um, I think the thing I would add to that, because I 100%, that makes so much sense, Crystal, and, you know, having that person say that, I, I do try to understand in cases where, especially, you know, if it's a one parent and another parent, mm -hmm. that it may take a beat and that, and that to, to at least give them a little time and understand that they have to change the whole schema of their life mm -hmm. once they hear that news and reinterpret you know, I see parents do this in their heads as they hear this news and they're reinterpreting every behavior, every comment, everything that had happened. And it kind of, it's like they have to rewire that sometimes. Um, and so allowing that space, but still figuring out how to support that child in that moment is that balance. Um, because sometimes if we give a parent that beat to do that, they can rise to that occasion and do it. Um, and it's that fine, you know, walking that line of figuring out if that's just what they need or if they're not going to get there and how do we make sure this child has that support no matter what. Mm -hmm. And as many people as can say that to a child, it's going to be even better. Yeah. So Amelia, your story was about not being believed that you had been assaulted on campus and the disbelief was so pervasive that you even started, started to doubt yourself. Um, has that experience informed the work that you do at CAC? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the process of telling your story, 
especially when you might not have told it originally and you finally are feeling safe enough to tell that. And I try to really pay attention to that with my clients because many times people don't report abuse right away. Um, sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's five years, 10 years. And so that doubt and kind of even questioning what happened can be so strong initially that what I remember and try to always kind of honor with my clients is that these things unfold, sometimes unfold over time, and just giving them a space to talk and not asking. I, in my story, I talk about, oh, the question starts, you know, not asking so many questions that may shift their narrative to, to really try to listen to let their story unfold and understand that they'll remember things in the way that they need to and that that's really important for them for it to come out in that way and not try to interrupt that process for them. So, well, Crystal, when you and I first met, we bonded over our mutual love for Saved by the Bell. Was that not true? No, I totally <laughs> love Saved by the Bell. Okay, good. Yeah, um, forever in my heart. No, I, I think I think I kind of figured out pretty much who I was by the time I was in my late 20s, early 30s, um, early 30s at least. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I still surprise myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, when uh, I, I have been told that... Um, I should lie about my age, like to meet people or whatever. And I just like, that's not something that I want to do. And I don't think it's something I can do. Mm. I mean, especially because like when I was in high school, our homecoming cheer for my class was, we are awesome. We are fine. We're the class of 89. Right. And people need to know that. <laughs> so how do. do I sell my age as different if I can't not sing that you terrible, terrible, last year <laughs> well karen clearly you uh graduated high school when you were nine yes <laughs> so <laughs> i was very precocious <laughs> in the 1900s in the like i say in my <laughs> you were alive in the 1900s uh, yes that's, uh, i had never had anyone say that to me before yeah. but my nieces they always your children always humble you in many oh, ways. Yes. yes they do <laughs> so um, then we have Heather's story where she's reflecting on how she believed the adults when they reported her son's behavior and how she's learned over the years that he has his own truth about what happened. Um, she notes that it's not that he found his voice as he got older, but that he was better able to be heard. So how does the CAC help children to be heard? Well, I think we, we try to do that on many different levels. And it to me, it starts with giving children an environment and families an environment they walk into and the instant they walk into, we want them to feel supported and safe. And I think safety is a big foundation of being heard. And so if you don't feel, if you're in an environment that feels a little scary, which is why CACs were kind of came to be, you know, as, as wonderful and supportive as, a, as an officer could be in a police station, that environment can be very scary for a child. They could think that they're somehow in trouble or they could be arrested, no matter how wonderful the people there are. And so laying that foundation with a safe, comfortable, cheerful, bright place where people greet you at the door and walk you into a room that has fun pillows and, and neat decorations and games, I think that sets that space right there. And then really bringing it in for that child and having one person in that room, not a bunch of people staring at you, but one person and listening to what you have to say and asking you about yourself first. 
So we build rapport with kids in a forensic interview for a reason, not just as part of the protocol, but because it's incredibly important for a child to feel like we're interested in some of the things they're doing. Um, and so I think all of those things we try to build on for kids and families. And so if, we, if the child feels heard, we want those caregivers that bring those children in to feel safe and hurt as well. So I think that's what really helps do that at a children's advocacy center. Yeah, Great. I mean, I would agree just, you know, having had an opposite experience when I disclosed my um, abuse, we didn't have a CAC, which is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about CACs. And the first time I ever saw the um, forensic interview room of a CAC, I was like, yeah, this is great. And like Amelia said, it's not because the people who are interviewing you don't care. They to totally care. They want to help you so much. But if you're, a, you know, a person who's already feeling pretty vulnerable and you walk into an adult space, a space that is clearly not meant for kids, whether it's a police station or maybe it's a prosecuting attorney's office or, or wherever that is, office. or a school <laughs> office. Yeah. I mean, a school office where usually you're in trouble when you go into the school office. Um, any of those places, you know, I, I just, I think that environment has a lot to do with making people feel comfortable in general. And if you ever ask yourself, like, if somebody's going to ask me important and personal details, you know, you don't usually want to do that in a place where you don't feel comfortable. This is why we go to therapy. <laughs> you know, this is why we go to a therapist's office, and it's not usually the same place as, say, your doctor's office. You know, it's it's not sterile. It's it's warm and it's inviting, and that's what the CAC does for kids. And the CAC has a, a resident dog, correct? Yes, we have Jeeves, <laughs> and uh, he definitely, I think, helps with that. If it anything that makes it seem like a less clinical place is going to make kids feel comfortable. And so, you know, I'll bring Jeeves in sometimes to meet the kids in the room and for counseling, he's there and he always is greeting people when they come in the door. So I, I do think that that makes a, a big difference. And we all have silly, funny things in our offices that I kind of collect Legos and have a little bit of a problem. <laughs> um, so, you know, letting kids play with the Legos, you know, mm -hmm. I've, no, give that to me. Give that to me. <laughs> but uh, we have, you know, I think there's lots of ways that we try to do that with kids and make them feel welcome and, and have some fun, too. And it's not just all serious stuff. You know, I do think, too, one of the best ways the CAC has been able to um, help children be heard is by teaching adults how to listen. Um, and that, you know, that was kind of the entire idea behind, you know, Team Zero and um, all of the great work that the CACs are doing, the CAC is doing um, to train people like you and me, you know. And there was a, a moment in Heather's story where when she said that um, that he had already, he didn't have to find his voice, he already had his voice. But she had mentioned that she just, you know, needed to learn how to explain it. Um, and and that is a huge part. I think children are telling us stuff all the time. We just don't know their language necessarily. Um, and this is interesting. I, I think, uh, Amelia, you had posted something on the CAC Facebook page uh, a couple of weeks ago about um, anxiety in kids and how it presents itself. And, you know, if it, your child is having a stomach ache, it might not just be a stomach ache. It might be anxiety. It might be something else. And there are so many ways that kids communicate, and it's not always just verbally. 
But I love that because that's like, hey, you're the adult and it's your job to learn kid language. Um, and that's what the CAC does too. I think that's one of the most important things is that they're teaching adults how to listen. Yeah, to translate. I mean, sometimes we talk about how do you speak language, but you know, you're talking about that stomachache thing. And I just had a family session the other day where, but it was a really interesting moment of connection where the child is staying home from school a lot because of stomach aches and we start getting into why and child's identifying such anxiety and stress that's happening in the classroom and what they're avoiding. And you saw this like switch just flip in the mom's kind of, you could see it on her face mm -hmm. where she was like, I did the same thing when I was her age. I just realized that that's how I feel my stress. And that's how I felt it when I was that age is that I felt it in my body <clears throat> instead of being able to identify that I was stressed out, Yeah, you know, and so it's a neat way when you connect that language and get people right. to remember, because I think we all go through that piece and that some of us still, <laughs> still do that. We <laughs> oh, feel yeah. a lot of our stress in our body and that's how it comes out instead of out of our mouth or <laughs> talking about or it. Or even if you can explain it, it's still there yeah. in your stomach or your back <laughs> or your neck or whatever. But I also found it so fascinating when I read this on the, C the CAC Facebook page. I shared it. I start started to pay attention to people commenting and people sharing that same um, article that was shared by the CAC. And all of them going, yes, this is spot on. Yes, I experienced this as a child. And I, rem you know, I remember it's not because my mom didn't care, but she didn't she didn't know the language. She didn't know how to translate. Um, so she went, oh, you know, I remember, I remember going through something where I was having, I was having clear anxiety, maybe even panic attacks, and I would get pain in my chest. And she said, I think it's just growing pains, which it, you know, I understood because, you know, I was growing all the time that maybe that it was, but I would explain it to her like, no, it feels like someone is sewing up my chest right now with a needle and thread. And she'd go, oh yeah, it's, and she was listening. She was trying but she didn't know. She didn't know, you know, what anxiety was. She didn't know what a panic attack was um, at the time or what to call it or that kids could experience it. And so I think, you know, having those moments where you can, you can explain something to an adult who goes, oh, my gosh, I went through the same thing. And then they look at kids differently, too. Yeah, I think our bodies eventually tell the truth, if, if, even if we can't tell it ourselves right away. And so being able to listen to children when their bodies are telling us something is very important. Well, I'm so happy we were able to put on this show that not only raised funds for the CAC, but also awareness of the work that the CAC does. And I thank you both for joining me today. Oh, it was our pleasure, I think. Just so <laughs> grateful for, for your help with this, Karen, and it was a wonderful experience for us to do. It was Excellent. a great show. Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to the CAC for the critical work they do for the community, and to Mike and Denise Busley, who sponsored the show. And another thanks to our in-studio guests, Crystal Frost and Amelia Siders. Find out more about the CAC at traversebaycac.org. Find out more about Hearsay at hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.